Take your Bibles and go to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, and we're going to read two sections here of Matthew 13, verses 24 through 30, and then verses 36 through 43, as we continue our series in the Tales of the Kingdom. And today, the title of the message is Wheat or Weeds. Wheat or Weeds. And we'll be looking at the parable of the wheat and the weeds, or the parable of the tares, as some translations will call it. And I'm going to invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Matthew 13, beginning in verse 24, the Scripture says, He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned but gather the wheat into my barn. Go to verse 36 where Jesus gives the explanation of this parable. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. And the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels And they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If Jesus Christ is king, then why doesn't he destroy all evil and all of his enemies? Why doesn't he end all that seems to be wrong in the world in which we live? Why does it seem like things are out of control in the world. I mean, let alone in the world, sometimes we may be asking that question as we're looking at things that are taking place in our own heart, in our own lives. Why does it feel like sometimes things are 
out of control and that, that he's not in control? Well, those questions are not new. And they have been asked by every generation of believers. But one thing that the questions that I just asked at least proposed or positioned before us is this, that Jesus Christ is King. And so if Jesus is King, we need to ask a question, and that question would be this, what is the kingdom of heaven? Or what is his kingdom? Because that's how this parable, as Jesus is teaching this crowd, that's how he begins this parable in a series of parables that compares the kingdom of heaven to specific things. And in fact, this particular parable is the, the, the parable of the weeds or the tares. It is only found in the gospel of Matthew. And it is one, the only parable whereby Jesus actually specifically gives you the very specific meaning of each part of the parable. And so we should begin then by asking what then is the kingdom? Well, the kingdom of heaven is this, and you should just note this in your mind or if you're taking notes, write it down. The kingdom of heaven, to be as just specific as we can, it is the reign of Jesus Christ. We might say it is the reign of God through Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, or God the Father through God the Son. But as simply as we can state it, the kingdom of heaven is the reign of Jesus Christ. However, how the kingdom comes in, or how the kingdom comes into the world really needs to be understood in light of the questions that I asked you in the very beginning. The kingdom began with the arrival of the king in the gospel narratives. And the king arrived to provide salvation. In fact, the Old Testament long anticipated the arrival of the Messiah, the king of God. However, Jesus came not to immediately overthrow evil and establish a physical throne. So those questions that I asked you in the very beginning, that's actually what was on the mind of the disciples themselves. How come you're not overthrowing Rome? How come you're not assembling an army? How come you're not establishing your physical kingdom on earth? But the reality is we know that he did not come to do that in his first coming. The Bible teaches that instead he came to bring salvation from sin through the cross where he died for sinners. And that he was buried and that he rose again from the dead and that he ascended into heaven where he is enthroned today. So for us to say that Jesus reigns, it is true. He reigns. And he reigns in heaven. And he is sovereignly reigning over all things. But the reality is, is that he reigns spiritually in the hearts of those who repent and believe the gospel. And that is how his kingdom grows in the world. Believers, those who believe the message of the gospel, are governed by his lordship. And that lordship can be visibly seen in the gathering of the church. We who confess the gospel also have submitted ourselves to the lordship of Jesus. We do not govern ourselves. He governs us. 
And so to some degree, the church is a visible demonstration of the lordship or the kingdom of heaven. And so that's why we believe that the kingdom of heaven is already, that is, it is already here present, but it is not yet in its fullness. You follow me? And you need to get that. That the kingdom of heaven is already, that is, it's already here, in that the Messiah has come, he has gone to the cross, died and risen again, and his kingdom is spreading by every person that submits to his lordship and is born again into his kingdom. So the kingdom has already begun, it is here. But it is not yet in its fullness in that Jesus is not physically here on the earth yet. But the kingdom is growing in the world, and as it grows, guess what? Evil still remains, right? And we live among unbelieving people. But one day, Christ's reign will consummate with his return. And when he returns physically onto earth, he will bring judgment. Now, all that I just said in kind of a summary introduction... Jesus illustrates this in this parable. He presents to disciples an already of his kingdom and a not yet of his kingdom. And he borrows from the agricultural realm. He uses a farming analogy to make his point, much like he did in the parable of the soils. This week, just to illustrate, I'm sure all of you have used, I had, this is, this is handmade thanks to Dick Neff, so I appreciate this. And this is a seed bag that contains seeds that originally planted the grass all around our property. So no magic just makes it special. So just so you know. But nevertheless, we're all familiar, right? We've all, we've all gone and planted, thrown a seed bag around us or, or something we push that casts the seed. But in biblical times, a farmer would go out, he'd have a bag around his neck, he would reach into that bag, he would pull the seed, and he would throw it in, onto the soil, and that's how seed would be planted. And so, in this particular parable, we see that Weeds are given special attention. And all of us know that weeds threaten a farmer's crop. They are enemies to a harvest. And so in light of that, they are, it's much like enemies who are a threatened, who are a threat to a king or to a kingdom. That's the parallel that Jesus is making. And so Jesus compares the kingdom of heaven to a field where wheat and weeds grow together. And in the parable, he captures, again, the already present and not yet of his kingdom. And as you read this parable, what I want you to really see that this parable is going to do, and listen to this, what this parable does is it forces us to consider whether we are either wheat or we are weeds, whether we are believers or we are unbelievers. Are you a part of his kingdom or are you an enemy of his kingdom? And there are, you will only fall into one or, or, or one of those categories or the other. And it also makes us consider that one day there will be a day in the future where he will separate the wheat and the tares and he will bring judgment upon every enemy who refuses to repent and believe the gospel. And so if we were to take kind of just one heading over this entire parable, here is the key kingdom truth 
that Jesus is communicating. Until the day of judgment, the church, or the kingdom of God, is in the world with unbelievers as a witness to the gospel. That really is the thrust of this parable. He is explaining to the disciples why we remain in the world and he has not overthrown all of his enemies. And that statement right there, I want you to consider that, write it down, and consider that as we walk through this parable. Now, the way we're going to walk through this parable to see that key truth is we're going to first look at the content of the parable. Then we're going to look at the comparisons in the parable. That is, the meanings of each thing, each point that Jesus makes. And then lastly, we're going to look at, with soberness, the conclusion of the parable, which truly, truly shines the light of truth into our hearts. So let's see if we, how we see this truth unfold in this parable. First, consider with me the content of the parable. Now, all I've done for you here is I throw out some headings so that you can see how the parable unfolds. So let, let's just unpack it. Look at verse 24. The first thing you see is the farmer who sowed the good seed. It says he put another parable before them, and he compares the kingdom of heaven to a man who sowed good seed in his field. So remember the parable of the sowers? Remember? In the parable of the sower, like that parable, Jesus now paints the picture of a farmer or landowner planting good seed in his field. The good seed, listen, falls on good soil. This isn't about soils of the heart. This is about the seed falling on good soil. It takes root, it grows up, and it produces wheat or grain. It falls on fertile ground. And then what takes place in verse 25 is there is an enemy who also comes along. There's a farmer and then there's the foe of the farmer. Who's the foe? Who's the enemy? Well, look at the text. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. So notice in this text... When Jesus brings up the weeds, in this case, the weeds have been intentionally planted by an enemy of the landowner. He has sowed weeds or tares. And while the servants of the farmer were sleeping, this, this enemy snuck in and sowed what commentators call, or what, what it would be known in the Middle East, is darnel. Darnel was a dark, poisonous seed that would be indistinguishable from wheat as it grew. It would grow up. It would grow up alongside of the wheat. Only when the fruit appeared or the grains appeared would a farmer know what happened. But what you need to see is that the intention of the enemy was to ruin the farmer's harvest and destroy his livelihood. Such an act, even in the Roman world, would be punishable by death in some cases. So Jesus presents the foe, or the enemy. And then, in verse 27, notice the concern of the servants. 
Verse 27, And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How, how then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest it be gathering the weeds, you root up the weed along with them. So notice the concerns of the servant. The servants are concerned. They're perplexed. And they ask about the weeds. How did they get here? Of course, the farmer tells them. Because he planted good seed, remember? Their concern is legitimate. In that they feared that the presence of the weeds would weaken or warp the entire harvest. But this wise master, what does he tell them? No, don't uproot them. Because by doing so, you might uproot the good seed you may uproot the wheat. The plant's roots, listen to this, had become entwined together because they're growing in the same field that they shared. And the other reason that he tells them not to pull them up is because some wheat had not matured and there was no way at this moment to tell the difference between the two. The time would come when they would be able to tell the difference and that would be at harvest. And so at the very end of the story, you see the fourth point or heading, and that is the command of the master. So what he does is, is he tells them, don't uproot. And he says, let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, at harvest time, what will take place? Look what he says. At harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first, bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. And so notice the two commands that the, the, that the landowner gives. One, let them both grow together. That's the first thing. Side by side, in the present, in the present before the harvest, let the wheat and let the weeds grow together. They can grow side by side. And then once the fruit appears, it will then become distinguishable. And then the second command that he gives is that they will grow together in the present and that they will be gathered in the future. See the already, not yet? See the already, not yet? In the already, the plants have been planted, they're growing up, but not yet are they to be separated. They're not to be separated until the harvest. And when that separation takes place, the reapers will be given the task to gather the weeds. And the weeds, look at the text, they will be bundled to be burned. Do you see it? Bundled to be burned. But the wheat that has grown up, well, where will it end up? It will end up in my barn, the landowner says. Now, that leads us to the same question those disciples were asking. So when they hear this, right, the crowds, the unbelieving just look at that and thought, have no idea what you're talking about. But the disciples are listening and they're wondering, why does the landowner allow the wheat and the weeds to grow side by side until the harvest? And the answer to that question will shine light 
as to why God has left his people to, and, and, and allows the kingdom to grow in a world where there is still sin, evil, and unbelievers. So let's go to the second point, the meaning of the parable or the comparisons in the parable. Now, as you jump to verse 36, Jesus has left the crowds. He's now in the house with the disciples. And his disciples came and they said to him, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And so here, the disciples come to Jesus in the house he's staying. And the question itself shows that they're actually thinking about, what about these weeds? What about these tares? Why are they allowed to grow with the wheat? Look at the text. Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. See, it's on their mind. Why not uproot them? You follow? That's what they're asking. In other words, Jesus, why don't you just destroy the enemy? Why don't you just wipe out the unbelievers? If you don't believe me, you can go over to Luke chapter 9. And when Jesus is preaching in Samaria... Many of the Samaritans refused to believe because he kept looking to Jerusalem. And James and John both looked at Jesus and said, Lord, do you want to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? I mean, why not? This is your moment. And Jesus forbids them to do so. And so it illustrates that in the disciples' mind, they weren't fully comprehending the entire scope of God's redemptive plan. And so Jesus then explains the parable with clarity and reveals the nature of the kingdom. So walk through it with me. Look at the first thing that Jesus tells them in terms of the meaning. He says, the farmer is the son of man. There's no arguing with that. That is, Jesus himself is the farmer. He is the one who sows the good seed. And by using the title, Son of Man, he takes the, the, the disciples' minds to Daniel chapter 12, verse 3, which we talked about the last time, where we are told that the Son of Man will be given an inheritance of the nations by the Ancient of Days. In other words, by Jesus using that title, he identifies himself as the true king of the kingdom. And because it is he that sows through the preaching and teaching of the word, the kingdom is growing. So the very fact that Jesus identifies himself as the farmer is a reminder to us that the word of God never returns void. And the word of God is always guaranteed success. Something has happened and something good is happening in that field. Because the son of man is the one who came and proclaimed the message of the kingdom. To repent of sin and believe on him. Additionally, what we should note there is that the way the kingdom grows... Through the, is through the message of salvation and not the means of the sword. The disciples would have understood that. The Son of Man spreads the seed of the gospel through the preaching of the word. Even John the Baptist preached the gospel and was the forerunner of Jesus Christ, telling people to repent. Repent and prepare for the king who has now arrived on earth. 
And it is a reminder to us that we do not force people to believe as tragically has happened throughout church history in the Crusades and in the Inquisitions and at other points of dark history carried out by people who claimed to be Christian but truly were not Christian. The kingdom comes gently in the form of a seed, not violently in the form of a sword. Jesus never told his followers to use political power to crush their enemy. And he never approved using military force to advance his kingdom. Even when Peter drew his sword and cut off the, uh, off the ear of the, uh, of the servant of the high priest, Jesus told him to put his sword back because his kingdom is from a different world and he is bringing his kingdom into the world through the work of the cross. And so the farmer is the son of man. The second thing to observe is the field is the world. Notice the text. Jesus makes it clear that the field is just simply the whole world. And the son of man is sowing in his field. This is a clear recognition that the whole world belongs to Christ. Even though it's not fully realized, it's still his. It, all of it belongs to him. Even though creation groans under the consequences of sin, its redemption has already begun in the salvation that has been brought to sinners through the death of Christ and his resurrection. The whole cosmos now awaits the day of final restoration when the curse of sin is lifted. Paul alludes to that in Romans chapter 8 verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. But until that day, listen to me, until that day, the world that Jesus identifies what's taking place, seed is growing up in the field of the world. So there are two types of plants in the field. Look at the text. The first one is the good seed. And what does he say about the good seed? He says that the good seed is the, is the sons of the kingdom. So in the field that is in the world, there are two types of people. There are the sons of the kingdom first. Now, in Matthew 13, 19, the seed was the word of the gospel. But here, the good seed is us. We're, we're the good seed, the believer. You become a son of the kingdom when you trust Christ for your salvation. So listen to John 1, 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed on him in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. That is the only way a person becomes a child of God. That is the only way a person can become a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Is by being born again by the work of the Spirit. And the first fruit of that new birth is faith in Christ. A renouncing of your attempt to save yourself. And a trust in the only one who can save you. And so notice that the good seeds, the believers that is, not that they possess any good of their own, but any good is only in the grace that they have received in the gospel. They are scattered throughout the field, throughout the world. And they are growing along with what? The weeds. And Jesus says that the weeds 
are the sons of the evil one. That would describe unbelievers. So notice two types of people. Unbelievers, believers. Just two types of people. No in-between. And when Jesus identifies the sons of the evil one, as he describes unbelievers, they belong to Satan because of their sinful nature and their unbelief. You are either saved today or you are lost. You either believe the gospel or you do not believe the gospel. You either have repented of your sin or you have re- you are remaining in your sin. There is no fence upon which you can stand. You are either in one or two of those categories. Paul even said that there are children of wrath and there are children of God. There are those who think of themselves to be religious and those who know only that they have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. Now listen to this. John MacArthur rightly highlights the fact that every single one of us were once weeds in the world. Every one of us. Every one one of us were once the children of wrath. Every one of us once belonged to the devil. John 8, verse 44, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. All of us were once children of the devil, because we did not believe the truth of the gospel. And yet what happened to us is God saved us, redeemed us. And when he saved us, now we have become the good seeds who were once the bad seeds. And now the good seeds are scattered. His church throughout the world. And the reason he has scattered us and left us among the weeds. And the weeds growing up all around us. And in many ways our lives with unbelievers are intertwined. We work with unbelievers in our homes. If, if, we're, if some in our homes have not been converted, we, our lives are intertwined. Even in the church, there's people who are not believers. And so, and, and so our, we see that the weeds and the wheat, they grow up together. Why? He has left us together for one purpose. And here it is, to spread the gospel. The two grow together to highlight the mission of the church. And what is that mission? What is that mission? Well, I'll give you three words for how. Here here are three ways that we, that here, here are three ways that we demonstrate to the world and we spread the gospel, that we demonstrate to the world the faith that we profess. Worship, witness, and walking. Those three words, write them down. Our task first is to worship when we come together. We worship Christ together. The world doesn't worship Christ. But we do because he has saved us. And we bear witness to the truth. And not only do we bear witness to the truth, but we walk in the light. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5. You can go there if you want to with me. 
But in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8, listen to what Paul says to the church at Ephesus. He says, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are, now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. In, in Philippians chapter 2, in verse 15, the apostle Paul writes this. He says, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Listen to that. We walk in the light. So he has left us with the weeds so that we may walk in the light before them, so that they will see that we have become children of God, not by our own goodness, but by the grace of God through the work of the cross. And we bear witness to the truth. We are to preach the truth. We are to teach the truth. We are to bear witness to the truth when we leave here and we are among unbelievers and we do so with love and grace. And again, when we worship together, we worship Christ. No better place for an unbeliever to come than to church to see Christians adoring and worshiping and praising the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in light of all of these things, While we warn of judgment, we proclaim the grace of God for the salvation of the lost. In other words, what I'm saying is, walk, witness, and worship in no means undermines that we are responsible to announce to others that there is a judgment coming. We don't bring that judgment against unbelievers. Instead, what we bring to unbelievers is the warning of judgment and the offer of salvation. That comes to us through the gospel. And so that's what you see as you see then the field of the world. But that leads to a third observation. And that is the enemy. He is the devil. Verse 39. And so behind the tares that have been sown and and are spread throughout the world. There is an enemy. And that enemy is the devil. He is the source as we just read of evil, lies and murder that is in the world. And Satan is a real enemy, and he seeks to devour the church and destroy the gospel. He hurls flaming darts in our direction, Ephesians 6. He opposes the kingdom of God, and he seeks to do everything he can to keep people's eyes from seeing the glory and the wonder of Jesus Christ. You know, there are three areas that I think he he has the most effective strategy. The first one would be in the world of entertainment. By just simply keeping us constantly entertained. And constantly having our eyes mesmerized by earthly, temporary, fleeting things. He enables us to to keep our eyes away from seeing the eternal. And to even considering the glory of God in Jesus Christ. We are in entertainment addicted culture. And the devil has is brilliant in the way that he has utilized that. The other one would be in education. In which the devil has been able to bring forth all sorts of sinful, evil ideologies that undermine the truth of the gospel. That diminish the reality of the creator. That, 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 that exalt man and, and, and dethrone God in their philosophy. 
The, and through education, getting us to believe that, that we are by nature good and then to worship our desires, particularly the desires of our, of our flesh. We have become so educated that we have no real appetite for divine truth and revelation. But I'll tell you the third way that the devil is genius and how he operates among the weeds of the world is he uses religion. He uses religion. And he's so subtle by the way he does it. Because we all want to believe deep down that we're good. That we can earn our way. We want to believe that what is really salvation is, is behavior modification. That if we just simply reform our ways, if we just turn over a new leaf, if we just can somehow change ourselves, then somehow we can make ourselves appealing to God. And by doing so, the devil is able through religion to undermine the glory and the beauty that is in Jesus Christ. And so we have to be reminded of that. That all the forces that are alive in education, secular, godless education, godless religion, Christless religion, and entertainment are designed to undermine. Now that doesn't mean that there's not beauty and good and some graces that can be found in any of those things. But what it means is, is that we must always be aware of the deceiving power of Satan and be alert so that we know and discern what is going on. Because the devil is a real enemy. And his desire is to get every one of us to not see the saving gospel of the king who has come to rescue us. But there's a third thing. The harvest is the a fourth thing. The harvest is the coming judgment. Look at verse 39. In verse 39 he says, just as the, in verse 39 he says, and the enemy who sowed was the devil, and then the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. And here what Jesus is doing is he's referring to his second coming. This is how history will end. Remember, in the middle of history, he inaugurated his, he inaugurated the kingdom. Through, the, through his first coming, his death on the cross. And through that, he, is, he has opened the way of salvation for his people. And he is saving to himself his people, his elect. And he is extending to the whole world the truth of salvation. But the harvest that is coming refers to his second coming. The same Jesus who ascended into heaven will come again at the end of history. History will conclude with the return of Jesus Christ physically to the earth and He will bring consummation. He will bring judgment to all unbelievers and then all of the kingdoms of the earth will be taken under His authority. But here... Jesus says that there's judgment coming. And at that day of judgment, the reapers, look at the text. The reapers are the angels. And those angels, what will they do? They will separate the godly from the ungodly. Well, what would be the basis of their separation? Well, remember back in verse 26, when the wheat came up, you were able to see that it produced real grain. 
And on that day, he will determine, he will, those angels will be given the task of identifying those who have true saving faith in Jesus Christ that has resulted in transformed lives and those who have rejected him and have not been truly saved. And so the final point that Jesus makes there in verse 39 is just to remind the disciples that they don't execute judgment. When you get to, listen, when you get to the end of verse 39, what he's driving home to the disciples is you don't get to execute judgment. You're here with the weeds to spread the gospel. And at the end of history, judgment will come. And so until then, patiently exist with unbelievers. Guard your attitude towards them. Share your hobbies as you can. Work among them in the same jobs. Attend the same schools with them. Same environments with them. Live in the same communities. Even attend church. But be faithful to proclaim the truth of the gospel. But then what happens is Jesus then, after he gives the meaning, he brings the conclusion of the parable. And if, if I'm losing you here, I want you right now, wake up and pay attention to these three verses. Because the conclusion is the, of the parable is that he takes us to the end of the age. Listen to me. If you want to know what judgment looks like, here's one verse you can go to to see it. There is here in verse 41, the, or verse 41, a, verse 40, the day of reckoning. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned in the fire, so will it be at the end of the age. That's what happens to the unbelieving. And again, look how he pairs that with the, the way the, the story itself ended. These three verses are both terrible and triumphant. And they should stir in our hearts both concern and bring to our hearts comfort. There are two things to observe. First, the judgment of the unbeliever. Again, verse 40, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire. Do you hear that? Let that fall upon your ears with a sense of terror. That's how it will be at the day of judgment at the end of the age. And in the judgment of unbelievers, notice he gives us the agents of judgment, the action of judgment, and the agony of judgment. Who are the agents of judgment? Again, they're the angels, like the reapers. They will separate the wheat and the tares. Imagine a day, there right before the throne of the great king, the king of kings, and the lord of lords. A great sea of people who have never repented of their sin who sat in churches just like this one and heard the gospel and they refused to believe. Can you see it? There they are. And the great and mighty angels come and they separate the, the believers and the unbelievers. And on that day, Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 1, the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, listen to this, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you're lost, this is your day to obey the gospel and submit yourself to the lordship of Jesus because he has extended to you this opportunity of grace to receive his salvation. Because on that day, it's too late. 
On that day, the angels open the books. On that day, the angels pour out the wrath of God against all who do not know the gospel. And I want you to look at the action of judgment. There are two verbs in this verse. Verse 41, they will gather out. Do you see this? Out of his kingdom. Now, when he says his kingdom there, he's referring to the earth now. The cosmos. Here's the day when he will gather out. He will root out all that is evil. All that causes sin and all lawbreakers. He will gather out everything that causes sin. Everything that causes sin and temptation. Every demon, every devil, every desire, every form of wickedness will all be uprooted and it will be eradicated according to the text. But here's what's most striking. And all lawbreakers. All lawbreakers. All lawbreakers. It's every person who remains unrepentant and in unbelief will be bundled like the weeds in the story. And they will be burned in the furnace of fire. There will be a physical separation. Can you imagine that scene? Rather than be received in the arms of mercy, the unbelieving will be thrown. There's the second verb. They will be thrown out of the kingdom. Why? We're all lawbreakers. Because they have refused to repent and to bow to the king who came to die and to be raised from the dead. And the text presents us the agony of judgment, the furnace of fire. That's Jesus' words. That's not mine. He calls hell a furnace of fire. The wording demonstrates the horrors of hell. That, that hell will be a place of eternal torment that awaits the ungodly. Hear me. Young person, middle-aged person, older person, it doesn't matter where you are, listen. Hell will not be a place of purging where you go temporarily. If you go to hell, you will go there forever. Hell is not a place of pleasure. There will be no partying in, partying in hell. I don't care what Saturday Night Live shows us. I don't care what we see on Tom and Jerry. There will be no celebration in hell. Hell is not a joke. It is not a myth. It is not a byword. Hell is real. Jesus speaks of it. And those who go there will never escape its torment. It is eternal suffering. There is no comfort, there is no relief, there is no friendship, there is no love, and there will be no salvation at that point. Revelation says that the fire there burns day and night forever and ever. It is so terrible that Jesus says here in verse 42, look at the text. He will throw them into the fiery furnace, and in that place, it is a real place, there will be weeping. In gnashing of teeth. Now I'm not trying to scare you. Like some hellfire and brimstone evangelist. But I'm okay with hellfire and brimstone. Because it is the truth of the word of God. And I'm trying to warn you. 
No, Jesus is warning us of the day of judgment. If you do not repent of your sin, if you do not trust the Christ who came and died on that cross and was put in the grave, but on that cross all of God's wrath and fury was poured out on Him so that you could escape God's judgment and come into His grace and mercy. If you do not trust that Christ, then you will spend eternity in hell. But oh, what a mighty Savior who has come to rescue us from this awful place. You don't have to be a tear. You can become a wheat by the grace of God. But I have to end with the joy of the believer. Because the text just doesn't end. The text is clear about judgment Because he wants the disciples to understand that he will bring judgment into the world. But the way he ends is with joy. Look at the text. After he says that this is a real place, he says, Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. That is the restored creation that he's talking about. A new heaven and a new earth where we will dwell in new bodies and the father God, the ancient of days, will reign forever through his son. And he who has ears, let him hear. The joy of the believer, three things quickly. They are righteous. The believer has been made righteous. The people that inherit this kingdom have been made righteous through the atoning death, the sinless life, the atoning death, and the victorious resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have been made righteous. The people there aren't good people. The people there have been made righteous by grace. And they are gathered. Look at it. Again, going back to, they will be in my barn. The righteous, the wheat, they will be with me. And then not only are they righteous, look at it. They are radiant. The righteous will shine like the sun. And he's referring to Daniel chapter 12. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. We can see this people here. They are radiating light. As bright as the sun. Why? Why the light image? Because sin has been removed. Sorry, like the elves in Lord of the Rings. We will radiate the light of God's glory and the holiness that we have been clothed in and the white garments of his salvation. But I want you to just notice the last thing that is said there. In the kingdom of their father. Aren't you glad that it doesn't have to end in that place thrown into hell? For the believer in the kingdom. Not maybe in the kingdom. In the kingdom. They are residing They will be safely brought home. And church, believer, we will be there in the kingdom that is to come. And we will dwell with our Savior forever and ever and ever. That's the joy of the believer. The question for you is what will happen to you on the day of judgment? So in closing, he who has ears, let him hear. You want to know why Jesus says that? Well, sure, 
He wants his disciples to understand the reason why he's left the wheat and the weeds to grow together. But you want to know the deep heart of our Savior? Here, he who has ears, let him hear. Because he wants these truths to strike fear and wonder. And for the good news of the gospel to bring hope to those that listen. Because as I just said, tares can become wheat. Sinners can become saints. Hell can be escaped. And heaven can be gained through the finished work of Jesus Christ. All you must do is embrace the gospel. I ask you three questions today with an invitation that if you here are not saved, won't you come even today and let us talk to you about salvation? And believer, may we pray that God give us wisdom and how to live as wheat among weeds and be faithful to share the gospel. So are you a wheat or a weed that looks like wheat? Which are you? Are you prepared for the harvest? Are you ready for the day of judgment? And what is your attitude and witness toward the unbelieving? Let those questions sink into our hearts as we stand and respond in song. Father, we bow our head before you. And this is your holy and inspired word. These truths are sobering. They are a reminder of the urgency of our mission in the world. But it also is a reminder of the urgency of our response in hearing the gospel. If there's somebody here who's not ready for judgment, they can leave here ready. Help them to become ready. By breaking their heart over sin... And seeing the beauty of Jesus who came to die for them. Help them even now to believe the gospel. Help them even now to run from their sin and bow to you as Lord and King. And I pray, Father, that not only there that we would not only that we be ready for judgment, that all of us here will be able to walk away being able to say, I know who I am. I am a child of God who's been saved by the grace that has come through Jesus. So if there's anyone here who has no assurance of salvation, who has no readiness for judgment, may they have it today, even now. And may we as your church be faithful, faithful to warn of judgment, but faithful to preach the grace that has come through your King, Jesus. Until, until he is here, and what is on earth, what is in heaven will now then be on earth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.